people were sort of giving up the drink, which had been the sort of stimulant of the times, and we're getting into the herbal jazz cigarettes. We smoked reefers on the plane all the way to the Bahamas. <laughs> John, how was the trip over? Did you all uh, get bored on the flight, or do you have things that uh, usually keep you entertained that, that you all were doing? Well, uh, we got stoned. All right. No, I'm, I know you're only kidding. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> And the plane would just had, it was like a charter flight with all the film, the actors and the crew and everything like that. But we just thought, yeah, you know, nobody can smell it. We used to have mal-smoking cigars to drown out the smell of it. <laughs> and the smell was just going back in this plane, but we had fun in those days. Well, do you think you have now encouraged your fans to take drugs? I don't think it'll make any difference, you know. I don't think my fans are going to take drugs just because I did, you know. Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chen. I'm John Stone. So, picking up from last week, which seems to be our want these days, <laughs> uh, we have indeed gotten the tape from Lord Reith, the Here We Go show. It was recorded on the 25th of October and uh, went out on the 26th of October, 1962. It's great quality. I was so surprised. Well, it's, it's better quality than we have any right to have. <laughs> yes. Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. It's great. So, yeah, so they, they played uh, both sides of the single and then they played uh, Taste of Funny. Though other lips may cling to mine, I know they'll never bring to mine a taste of honey, a taste much sweeter. And why? The Love Me Do, we had had some question because they played a TV show about a week before and there was a little bit of problem with the beat going on and we were trying to figure out whether it was Ringo imitating Pete's skip beat or it was just something that happened. Yeah, and this version is, is like the single. It's, so. it's clean, yeah. Although it, it is interesting to me that they're still playing it a little more blues than they did on the record. Yes. Well, you know, I think that John especially, probably all of them, felt like they did lean that direction, and which was the big objection to uh, them doing How Do You Do It? Because uh, 
it's just a pop song. And I don't think they saw themselves really as that. In fact, I think Lennon says, we can't go back to Liverpool <laughs> if we do this song. Yeah, they, they, they laugh us off the stage in the cavern. Although they right. did actually play it once or twice live in the cavern, apparently. <laughs> if we could only find that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of like the way they do it live. It, it has a little bit more punch. They wouldn't play it for that much longer, but when it would come back up, they would tend to stick to the recorded arrangement a little bit more. Right. They were probably bored of it by that time. <laughs> well, I mean, again, you see how quickly they were to drop I Want to Hold Your Hand a year yeah. later. Their huge intro into the U.S., and they drop it really quick. P.S. I Love You, we get to hear Ringo actually drumming on it, and that's cool. Yeah, it's real nice. He, he does a great job, unsurprisingly. It was a really good recording. I hope everybody gets a chance to hear it. And then, as Lord Reeves reported, uh, Taste of Honey does indeed feature an extra verse, the same extra verse that Paul sings in Hamburg. Which makes you wonder why it was cut. And I guess that was the producer's choice. Yeah, that, that was your supposition. They just needed to cut it for time. And then the thing we don't have, we know they recorded a version of Sheila that day, and... Well, that never aired, so that obviously wouldn't be on a tape like this made off the air. But, you know, hopefully someday somewhere in the BBC they'll find it, although, you know, that's not likely to happen. Who keeps that stuff when they're that being the thing yet? Yeah, it, it would almost have to be if they cut it and someone had picked it up off the ground. But that's the other thing, you know, this was the first of these uh, BBC shows where they didn't bring their own audience. This is just a random audience that they picked up for, oh, you know, we're doing a BBC show. It's like, and it, it, and they like them, but they're not quite into the mania yet. No, appreciative, but not fanatic. You know, whereas the first, here we go, they brought their own crowd and you can tell. When they stop and there's those, yeah, kind of not the high end screen, but just a great appreciation of it. And uh, these are, it's more. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting. So, okay, the topic we wanted to. Uh, go into this week if we're talking about the beatles and drugs in general you can't do any better than uh, joe gooden's book riding so high yes which i will admit having flipped through <laughs> you know before the show <laughs> just kind of look look for some things but more for what we're going to be talking about what what we thought was well you know um what were the individual beatles responses to chemicals, stimulants, psychedelics, whatever. And then how did that reflect in their songwriting? Were they actually trying to advocate for the use of drugs or were they just sort of living their lives? Right. I think my first thought was, did the Beatles kind of make or help make drugs in the 60s a cool thing, acceptable? And the first thing anybody would come up with when you say that is, of course, but... Really? Okay, anything that they do is going to be looked at and dissected. Again, we're looking at it 50 years later. But (laughs) 
for the most part, I don't think they were actually trying to go out and tell people, you know, we did this. You can do this too. It's like, eh, well, no. we did this. Yeah, not at all. It was not that. The, the initial appearance of anything is just uh, terms that they might use as they went along. And probably most famously was Dylan's whole hearing, uh, uh, I can't hide and I want to hold your hand as I get high. And he thought, wow, these guys are really, <laughs> they're in the know. That's not what they said, but that brought him to their hotel with, uh, with marijuana. And Al Aronowitz. <laughs> That's an experience, I'm sure. I don't remember what, much what we talked about. We were either smoking dope, drinking wine, and generally being rock and rollers and having a laugh, you know. Those sort of phrases later on, John singing, I get high when I see you go by. certain phrases he uses now and then that indicate being in that, that sea. Paul would say, even when they were writing Little Help for My Friends, you know, that, that he and John just sort of looked at each other when they wrote the, the line that, that I get high with a little help for my friends. It's like, yeah, we, we knew what that meant. And if people were clued in, they'd get it. Right. And the fact that they, uh, they sang, uh, I love to turn you on uh, in a day in the life in the same album. I mean, they, at that point, they were being a bit more uh, out there. Open about things. I think the other than alcohol, the first uh, experience that they would ha- collectively have was uh, Benzedrine back in the art school days. Right. And Hamburg. The thing about the Benzedrine, and the reason I want to bring it up, this was a case of someone explicitly going to them and saying, you know, 
look, you can do this, and this is cool. You know, Royston Ellis, the beat poet, was was actually trying to be a, a Johnny Appleseed of uh, chemical enhancement. Yeah, that's an important point, I think. You know, that sort of, uh, you should try this, <laughs> which they would be faced with for the rest of their lives. You should try this. Making for the exit of the sweating mothered cellar. Breaking off the fanship of the writhing nights of going. Hating all the throbbing and the skipping blues of sadness. Defeated by Cat's Jazzitude. Rocked by his soul. It's funny, you know, Paul talks about years later that uh, when he was living in the Asher household, uh, Dr. Asher would prescribe some Vicks inhalers for him. And uh, by the end of it, he said, oh, and by the way, once you're finished using him as an inhaler, you can take them apart and eat the Benzedrine if you wish. So it's like, uh, okay. (laughs) Right. And it wasn't so much uh, do it. It's cool, but it's like, you can do this, you know. Here, it's a nice mild stimulant, and actually from everything I've read, it's kind of like people take Adderall these days. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it was something that would both give you a little high, but would more sort of help your concentration. Well, you know, the whole pharmaceutical industry was in such a a growth period of, of things, and people's view of that was completely different. We live in a point where there has been decades of drugs are bad. That that's the way our society tends to look at it. Back then, I think there were people who were more open to it. I mean, yeah, finish off the bits of drinking, not a big deal. Uh, then, as you mentioned, you know, then they went to Hamburg, and there, the the prelude and the the stimulants were needed to just get through the night around about the sixth set when we were flagging a bit and the boss of the club who was a bit of a gangster brought all his gangster pals in saying you know wanted us to jump up and down preludin paladin which were women's slimming pills and we'd take them and froth at the mouth and leap up and down saying what i say right young guys constantly high that's rock and roll mate i guess it was almost like alcohol they weren't actually trying to do it to be cool it's well it just kept them going. The The interesting thing about that is that uh, Astrid says that her mother actually went out and got prescriptions for Preludin. So that, that was one of the sources of where they got them. Right. Not for its intended use of weight loss, but, well, you know, it's okay. Again, like you were saying, it's just sort of a thing. Right. It wouldn't be too many more years before, you know, Rick Jagger wrote Mother's Little Helper. All those drugs were floating around then i guess where do we go and uh, then they invented marijuana and we somebody gave it to us and we smoked it and the best thing about that was that we used to drink whiskey and the moment marijuana came we just knocked the whiskey in the head yes with the uh pre-mentioned bob dylan bringing it in that may have been the first time they had good pot but i don't believe that's really the first time they'd encountered pot yeah i would agree with that the, their experiences in hamburg not even so much hamburg you know they, they were hanging around with jamaican jazz bands in liverpool right you know, in the in alan williams's basement 
And, and, you know, one of their best friends was a fellow who called himself Lord Woodbine. You can't tell me that Pot wasn't involved there somehow. <laughs> but but clearly, in the way they have related things, or people have related things, that it really what didn't become any kind of a big deal until the meeting with, with Dylan. And that was extra special. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, it, it may have been the first time they had good pot. The other, the other story that is told is the infamous New Year's Eve evening, 1961 into 1962. Uh, you know, they went they went out to the fountain, and it was a very cold night. And apparently, uh, one of the other revelers in in London said, "Hey, you guys want to come back to our car and smoke some reefer?" And it's like they just sort of looked at each other and backed away. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking McCartney would be like, we're recording tomorrow. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although if they had gotten high, they might've uh, done better on the deco audition. Yeah, for sure. And where was Pete? <laughs> <laughs> so the, really the story from the point that we want to tell it starts with that 64 meeting with Dylan. Right. And um, that was in September uh, or August uh, was the end. I believe it was the end of August. Okay, and and apparently they got into it because they were certainly smoking pot by the time that they went to uh, the Bahamas to film Hell. They would go whole hog into the use of marijuana right throughout the next six months at least flying down to the Bahamas they were in first class with several other celebrities it was a party plane it, it was a party plane and uh, and one of them had what McCartney would come to describe as dynamite weed <laughs> and the, the story is so so they were all up front smoking the weed and uh, they had Mal in the back uh, smoking cigars to cover the smell good old Mal yeah, so they were way into it. I think at that point, John was willing to let people know. <laughs> well, obviously he was because once the flight landed, one one of the first things that happens is he's come. He, he is approached by a, a World News Service reporter. He goes, "John, well, how was the flight? You know, did did you have a good time?" It's like, "Oh, of course we did. We got stoned." <laughs> and, and the right. reporter just just turns to look at him and says, "Well." I know you're kidding, <laughs> and John just kind of doesn't say anything. Right. Well, you know, I remember the, the belief that being stoned could be drunk as well. And so that's how that was viewed, I think, at the time. He meant being drunk. Because if, if everyone would have gotten that it was pot, it would have been a big deal. <laughs> well, I mean, pot was part of the general musical culture i mean it mightn't have affected creativity to for other people i know it did for us and it did for me i mean the first thing i mean that people who smoked marijuana um and were into music is that somehow it focuses your attention better on the music and so you can hear it clearer um or well, that's how it appeared to be the jazz musicians had been uh, partaking readily since the 30s. For sure, for sure. But their public persona was particularly the last of 64, first of 65, was still pretty much that. The mop tops. Yes. And, and 
that would appeal to the queen, <laughs> you know. Um, so they weren't going, I don't think, we were intending on releasing any kind of information like that. But he clearly is quoted saying that. And it makes me wonder whether Brian Epstein had a good talking to him after that. I can imagine he probably did. Although, again, you look at their behavior on on the set of Help. Yes. Even the stuff that they did on film is kind of goofy stone stuff. Ringo's favorite story about the fiendish thingy. There's one scene in the film where... Um... Victor Spinetti and uh, whoever else is in the scene, and they're doing that curling, you know, those big stones they they do. (laughs) And one of them, of course, has a bomb in it. We find out about this, or it's going to blow up, and we have to run. We have to run away. Come, Ringo! Paul and I ran about seven miles. (laughs) 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 We we just ran and ran so we could stop and have a joint (laughs) and come back. We were just off. You know, we'd run to Switzerland. Uh, Dick Lester knew the very little would get done after lunch. (laughs) Yeah, so that was their drug of choice. I I knew that the boys smoked pot, and they they equally knew that I disapproved. And they never did in front of me. They would always um, have Mel roll them a joint and they'd nip out into the, into the canteen and lock it or else go into the loo and have a, have a smoke and come back again, beaming all over their face. Clearly all the way to Rubber Soul. So, I mean, lyrically, it did start to creep in. They took Dylan's advice and kind of started to drop little hints that we're at least in an altered state of mind, if not specifically talking about marijuana. Right. And, and I find it kind of interesting, you know, we're going to talk... Uh, a little bit more about this shortly. One of the songs which is repeatedly associated with pot is probably not a pot song. That's uh, got to get you into my life. Yeah, it seems completely of the wrong time. For whatever reason, Paul has decided to change history a little bit, I think. In interviews to this day, he says that, you know, that was about marijuana. It's like, uh, are you sure about that? <laughs> right. You had mentioned something like Nowhere Man. I guess it's kind of the, the lethargy and the the pleasant side effects that John is kind of writing about. There's several songs of, of that era which are great being stone songs. You know, they're sort of lethargic. You know, I'm only sleeping and rain. You know, there's several songs that just have that feel to them. And Nowhere Man, it's kind of about him being on the couch being stoned. Our whole attitude was changing. Um, we'd grown up a little. Um, I think grass was really influential in a lot of our changes. Well, and really, you know, the entirety of Rubber Soul, ironically, even more the American Rubber Soul than the British, is a pot album. <laughs> right. You know, you got the cover with them in those leather suede jackets, and it's like with the green trees behind them and the, the slightly tilted back image of their faces you know it's not quite an acid experience it's more of a just an altered reality yes they really were part of the folk scene at that point and so that look and that acoustic approach just worked perfectly at the time even the font used for the rubber sole letter <laughs> that's why it never looks quite right on the cassette of the eight track where they just have this plain white rubber sole right 
you don't know what is planned and what comes off because of your state of mind. But even the idea of the cover of Rubber Soul being tilted slightly so that the angle is is off, kind of elongated. And so that is kind of a stoner thing. You know, the story that Freeman had the card and uh, it sort of tilted back. It may have been that the boys were at least uh, somewhat high. And it's like, <laughs> that's the image. That's the one we want. That's the one. Print it like that. It's like... Right. If they were completely straight at that moment, it's would they have necessarily gone that way? Right. But then they're very good at representing an altered state of mind to the people who haven't necessarily taken drugs. Right. But is that cool? They're not. Okay, so so maybe John Lennon is telling you, yeah, yeah, we smoke pot, and maybe there's sort of these clues coming out. But again, it doesn't seem like they're really encouraging people to go out and try it. No, I don't think it was necessarily a proactive thing at that point, or whether it ever really became that. That wasn't the reason for their art. But the fact that that it was out there and that they may or may not be doing it brought people into, uh, like, you know, get high, it's cool. But a lot of it was part of the scene at the time. The the folk music scene was certainly uh, tied to... Hot use. Again, their growing friendship with Dylan. Everybody must get stoned. And Joan Baez, uh, they were hanging out with the Folkies. Right. Uh, although it, on one of the songs, which everyone believes is a pot song, not a Beatles song, uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, Peter Yarrow, he just went off on the reporter. It's like, no. That is a children's song that is not about marijuana in any way, shape, or fashion. It's like, okay. Yeah. You know, there was definitely a lot of looking into things, which is why I think people were kind of aware of something happening. I mean, the, there were rumors that Yellow Submarine was about pills. And it's yeah. like, I don't think that's the case either. Right. Exactly. The Beatles were so high, they let Ringo sing a couple of tunes, man. <laughs> We all live in a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine. We, we, what, we all live in a yellow sub, you know how high they were? They had to pull Ringo off the ceiling with a rake to sing that thing. Tom, Tom, get Ringo, he's in the corner. Pull him down. Wow, look at him scoot, grab him. Look at him scoot, but Ringo, come down. If Yoko's gone, we can party again. They were real high. They wrote great music. Drugs had a positive effect. The thing I think is, you know, weird and fascinating is just shortly after that, their dentist slips them acid. John and George. John and George, without telling them, which I think is terrible. And that experience was profound. And so what was going on with them from that point on almost becomes different. As much as John liked pot, he really seemed to sort of go off of it by, not immediately after he had that first trip, but but by the end of 65 even, he was much more into acid. Right. You can certainly do both. <laughs> but the acid in particular was, was profound in its impact on him. So we, we still don't know exactly when that first trip was, but it's generally acknowledged to be spring of 65, possibly as early as January. Right. So... 
I think in both George and John's comments about acid, you can just see how life-changing it was in, in their views, in their openness. Marijuana was just like having a couple of beers, really, but LSD was like more like going to the moon. That first trip frightened them a little bit. Yeah, for sure. But the impact was huge, and it certainly didn't scare them off it. By the end of the American tour, the the infamous Peter Fonda party, I believe that's recognized as, for John and George, the second time that they would do acid. So it took them a couple months. Yeah, oh, for sure. And that was also the first time uh, Ringo would drop. In L.A. They, they tried to convince Paul, but he wasn't quite ready yet. Well, you know, they had a whole bunch of stuff in their way <laughs> between trips because, you know, they had a... They had a movie to film movie. and then they had touring, touring, touring. Right. And, and this was really sort of the break from that before they went back home and really then they had more touring at the end of the year. Right. Not to mention recording a couple albums. <laughs> the pesky albums that always got in the way. But you have to imagine the uh, peer pressure that the other three put on Paul to try this experiment. Absolutely. I mean, particularly because it was so profound in their lives. Yeah, I'm not surprised they really put the pressure on him because it was like, this has really changed the way we look. And, you know, and Paul was probably, I don't want to change. To a certain extent, Paul had been that way all the way along. Some people attribute it to the fact that his mother was in the medical profession and it's like he still had some of that inside of him. That makes sense. You know, I think he's very thoughtful and certainly when your best friend is john lennon who will jump off any cliff you might have a certain well you do it first i'll see <laughs> for the other three after they got back from los angeles acid did become a regular part of their lives yes if not daily at least you know consistently certainly with john and the music that he produced for revolver just totally reflect that but again is it advocating or is it just here's what i've seen tomorrow never knows the tibetan book of the dead it's again about an altered state of mind but john is not really saying acid is what got me here as i say it's not really that he is advocating it certainly is this is where i have been and everybody kind of viewing it was impacted to either embrace that message or reject it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, that's what I was asking what John and the Beatles did in kind of making it acceptable. I don't know. They were creating their art, but the fact that that art was influenced by what they saw when they were on trips, A, as you mentioned, it kind of really wasn't absolutely common knowledge at that point. Right. And then B, they're not writing about it in that fashion. Lennon eventually became kind of a, a newspaper man in his lyrics. At this point, it was poetry, a really honest poetry for the most part, but still it's not being you know, plain spoken. But you get into things like Dr. Robert. You know, there's a song about a drug connection. And then you put that in with some of the other songs he does on Revolver. Tomorrow Never Knows, I'm Only Sleeping, which I, I kind of put in there because that's just the way it feels to me. That's kind of his report of his state of being. 
we go back to Paul now. Paul has always claimed that his first trip was uh, sometime in mid-66, but all evidence points to it actually being uh, just after the Beatles tour finished in December of 65. That's earlier than I had ever thought. Tara Brown, whose death inspired the Beatles' haunting classic, A Day in the Life, and heralded the end of the swinging 60s, was a London socialite, dandy extraordinaire, and heir to the Guinness Brewing Fortune. Brown also befriended Paul McCartney, introducing the famous Beatle to LSD. Tara Brown is where that date comes from, and uh, he and Paul were actually together, and other people have corroborated that, so it's like, yeah, that's probably when it actually was. And for whatever reason, he's just sort of changed the date. Right. You know, so we're we're talking about Revolver. You know, got to get you into my life. Again, Paul has always said that it's a pot song, but... I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Yeah, I think that was one of his best songs, too, because the lyrics are good and I didn't write them. You see? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so when I say that he could write lyrics if he took the effort... Yeah. Then there's the occasional song like that where it says, I took a ride. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not sort of wishy-washy. It actually describes his experience on taking acid. I think that's what he's talking about, really. Well, I couldn't swear to it, but I think it was a result of that. You know? you know, you look at the lyrics. I was alone. I took a ride. I didn't know what I would find there. He's talking about, if not his first trip, certainly amongst his first trips. I agree. That has always bothered me that what he was singing didn't really fit pot <laughs> with acid. You take a trip and that's the opening line in Paul's song. Now it does soon enough drop into a fairly traditional love song. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. My point here is, and again, it may have to do with the differences in their two personalities. John is kind of, I took this drug and here's what happened. Whereas Paul is kind of going to a positive place. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. This this drug took me to someplace where I've never been before. And uh, you know, there's lots of good things happening here. If you want to say anything about them sort of advocating the use of pharmaceuticals in their lyrics, Paul becomes the one who's actually more strongly doing that. Yeah. Which, is kind of the same as him being the first to go out and, and announce that he had taken it. Despite warnings that it would lead to stronger things, the Ruttles enjoyed the pleasant effects of tea, and it influenced enormously their greatest work, Sergeant Rutter. The release of this album, a millstone in pop music history, contributed greatly to an idyllic summer of bells, flowers, and tea drinking. Its music led thousands to experiment with tea. Eventually, even the press found out and offered Dirk the chance to deny it. It's, it's not up to me. If you come to me and ask me, I'm going to tell you the truth. Because it is the truth. I have had tea. Lots of tea. Indian tea. And biscuits. Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, they are fairly clearly both songs at least a little bit about acid. Yeah. Strawberry Fields made it plain <laughs> by saying that Paul first took acid in 65, you know, that would influence his songs on Revolver. Mm-hmm. Because his songwriting really shifts at that point. 
I mean, what other song had the Beatles ever done like Eleanor Rigby? We go back to the last single. Rain is uh, definitely an altered state song. Right. Although I don't know if I would definitely say it's an acid song or if it's a pot song or if it's sort of somewhere in between. I don't know. You know, it's got this altered vision and it's also kind of got this lethargy that... Uh, well, certainly Lennon had a, a look about him in the video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just think that there was a, a shift in, in McCartney's songwriting. Yes. He's got several stories about songs from that album, uh, two of which, you know, Here, There, and Everywhere, he said was really influenced by Beach Boys, and Good Day Sunshine, which he said was influenced by The Love and Spoonful. So he was kind of looking around and grabbing stuff, you know. But in a way, you know, Eleanor Rigby just stands as a, a piece you don't even know where it came from, really. Lyrically, melodically. He just kind of had a different perception on life, the universe, and everything. Right. Paperback Writer, that's not really a drug song, I don't think. That's, that's just one of those McCartney story songs. Yes. He, I get what you're saying. It's, it's kind of a twist on that by the time he hits Revolver. You go from Paperback Writer to Eleanor Rigby. Is it acid that sort of changes perception enough to, to be able to make that connection? Right. But, you know, Payback Rider and Rigby are really all part of the same set of recording sessions. It's all in that month, month and a half or whatever it is they took to, to record it. So I group them all together. But I think back to McCartney on Rubber Soul, which was the previous album, and his writing was, I mean, it was great. <laughs> but something about Eleanor Rigby just took a leap. Interesting. We'd had acid uh, on Revolver. Everybody's under this illusion that uh, even George Martin was reading an MM saying, yeah. oh yeah, Pepper was their acid album. We'd had acid, including Paul, by the time Revolver was finished. In the Pepper, that's very clearly uh, their view for, uh, from the other side of the acid wall. Right. But you look at John, while Lucy is clearly a song about having been on a trip, it's really sort of Lewis Carroll recycled. Yes. Again, is the same thing you can say for Walrus, really. Yeah, I guess you're right. The music and and what comes out is a very definite space, but the lyrics are okay, great. You know, John's writing something like Lewis Carroll in the same way that in '64 John will be writing something like Chuck Berry or like The Miracles. Right. The Pepper tracks really can be looked through the the uh, scope of McCartney and his proposal to be somebody else. And I think that really kind of made a difference in how that album was put together. In a way, it became the thing of when people do something that's Beatlesque, it's kind of in that genre. But the songs, for the most part, uh, are completely wrapped around that. Now, George is interesting. It's clearly the Indian side of thing that, he was buzzing off of, but the drugs are also kind of tied up into that a little bit, at least going back to, they had their first trip in January of 65. It was right after that, that mother India touched George Harrison and he really got into it. Yeah. It was two things. It was the, the, the sitar on help. And then it was also David Crosby 
first introduced the music of Ravi Shankar to George Harrison right around that period of time. Right. And in February, when they were filming Hell in the Bahamas, he was given a book which uh, set him on that path of Christian. So um, I see that huge drug impact as part of this as well. Not that he went there because of drugs, but it was the fact that these they were like becoming way more open to ideas. It's hard to actually uh, explain it, but it was just a feeling of just the consciousness traveling. Mm-hmm. I don't know where to, and it wasn't up, down, left, or right. Um, but it was just no body there, but at the same time, you don't feel as though you're missing anything. Mm-hmm. You know, the consciousness is complete. From the view of the present day, uh, as you say, the Indian experience and the at least the pot experience, if not the acid experience, are all kind of tied together into one thing, although George would strongly disagree with that. Yes. By the end of 67, they were kind of looking to move on. They'd had enough of it. John would write, baby, you're a rich man. And here, you know, he's explicitly saying, what did you see when you were there? And the answer is nothing that doesn't show. It's like, I don't need this anymore. Right. It's funny that he uses the same line virtually in All You Need Is Love. Nothing you can see that isn't shown. And then George, uh, he had... He went on that visit to the hate, and he very strongly says, well, that that was the moment that it's like, I'm getting off the lysergic. I don't like this. I don't like what it's done to these kids. Right. I don't know what George saw. You know, he talks about, oh, he, he put some of his blotter under uh, a microscope and looked through, and he <laughs> saw something which looked like a load of old rope. It's like, what, what are you looking at, George? <laughs> there, there's, there's no way the acid... It may crystallize. You may see something which looks like a, a salt formation, but you're not going to see something which looks like, quote, a load of old rope, unquote. I have a theory. What's that? It was his eyelash. <laughs> there you go. George just didn't know how to use the microscope. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and immediately after that was the Maharishi. Once they were involved with the Maharishi, they all said, that's it. For the drugs. I think I'm going to adjourn to a different part of my brain with some LSD. You care to join me? Yeah, let's do that. Lucy in the sky with diamonds, mm. I like mm. to say. I wrote that one. So, wrote... Care to join us for some LSD, do we? It's mm. good for you. Built by scientists, it is. Vitamins for the soul. Ringo Starr, we are here for meditation, not for medication. Well, it's not technically medication. It's more of a relaxation benefit for the brains. Guru, you are the least famous person in the room. No offense, but these are the Beatles, and I'm Dewey Cox, and maybe just chime in when it's appropriate. <laughs> you want to try it, Dewey? Hmm? Raise your consciousness like us with a beetle. I gotta check with headquarters. Everybody's got something to hide. Uh, except, uh, except for me and my monkey, I know. He'll try it if he wants to try it. Don't push him too hard, John. They were supposed to be completely clean, but there are stories that Magic Alex, amongst others, did deliver them some uh, some pot during their time in Rishikesh. Right. They were publicly saying, we're done with that. We don't know what you know or what you think you know, but whatever you're thinking, we're not there anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. We kind of skipped over 
Paul's big statement to the press. That's pretty important, if for no other reason than that is the strongest bit of advocacy that any of them would ever give for the use of mind-altering substances. You know, he, he goes off on this interview and he says, you know, people only use 10% of their brain and and this stuff can uh, allow us to access the other 90%. Right. Although I, I, I've always felt like George's uh, statement about uh, he, he talking to a newspaper man. Uh, you see, a big change happened in 1966. A dentist we were having dinner with put this LSD in our coffee. Now, people who've taken that will know what I'm talking about, and anybody who hasn't taken it won't have a clue because it transforms you. After that, I didn't need it ever again. That's the thing about LSD, you don't need it twice. You've only taken it once? Oh, no, I took it lots of times. <laughs> but I only needed it once. That's kind of like, yeah, LSD was not too bad. Mm -hmm. And again, in that... Uh little bit where Paul's talking to the reporter that sort of sums up their whole view on drugs to my mind. You know, it's like, you know, I've taken it. You've asked me the question. I'll tell you the truth. If you don't want kids to hear about it, then don't write this story. Right. I mean, he knew exactly how, how the media works. And it's like, if, if you think this is going to be bad, then don't print it because he was he was asked the question and he just responded honestly. So, so post India, we know what drugs are there, but sort of the, the history becomes a lot fuzzier. Right. Supposedly John came back from India in a heightened state emotionally and took up with, Drugs and Yoko, very quickly. A question that we had from the song, you know, he's talking about uh, in Happiness is a Warm Gun, I need a fix. You know, what fix is he talking about? Right, because that was demoed at Esher, and it's in there. So that seems a little early for any kind of works. By the end of the Beatles, John made no bones about dabbling with heroin. John, does it bother you at all that your songs are taken on so many different levels as far as interpretations are concerned? No, because they, they are on all those levels, you know. Mm. Excuse me, I feel a bit sick. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, they work on, on all levels. Uh, you can make it. No, it was certainly known, I think. <laughs> I'm just a perverted drug drug pop star, you know, and all that thing. I can recall something being said around the time he had a car accident in Scotland about possible drugs. Of course, he had been busted October of 68. Although the busts are kind of a, a different story altogether. I mean, they, they have less to do with the drugs themselves than with law enforcement and uh, and from the perspective of what we're talking about here, okay, it was an admission that they actually had cannabis on them, but maybe it was f forcing them to 
go out and say, yes, you know, kind of like we were talking about with Paul, except, you know, we're really just talking about pot here. Right. You're correct. The heroin thing, I mean, the most obvious is that is that one interview with John and Yoko, the I believe it's Canadian interview, where which is which is now referred to as the uh, the two junkies interview. Two junkies, yeah. Where where John looks terrible and he, he he has to get up and be sick in the middle of the interview. And his answers are wandering. And then cold turkey. I mean, you know, again, without specifically saying what he's coming off of, he is talking about coming out of some sort of chemical. For sure. It doesn't name anything specific, but it, you know, I think most people assumed it was heroin. So, you know, then we move into the seventies, really uh, neither John George nor Ringo would write much about chemicals during their solo careers. Then she held out some marijuana. Paul is a slightly different matter. I mean, of course, again, taking up with Linda and the their favorite pastime apparently during the seventies was to was to roll a fatty. Good for them. <laughs> you know, if if you're going to become the biggest rock star in the world, smoke away, smoke away. And and Paul would would ride high, high, high. <laughs> right. I think Apple tried to flee from it for a little bit. You know trying to deny that it was about that, but yeah. So, you know, he, he likes it. So he, you know, that, I guess that would be a promotion. Whereas, you know, Lennon's cold Turkey was definitely harrowing. Well, and you know, so, that's kind of what I've been saying. This whole, the, the this whole show is, you know, again, it's re- reflective of their personalities, but John, when he would write songs about it, okay, I mean, other, probably Lucy and Walrus accepted, he was not necessarily saying this is a great thing. Whereas Paul, you know, again, much like his interview, yeah, okay, I did it. It worked. You know, I got something out of it. Here's what I'm thinking about it. Here's the good side of, uh, of being, being high on pot or acid or whatever happens to be the chemical choice at the moment. Right. That's a, a fair assessment, I think. And then, then that, of course, brings us around, you know, much, much later in, into the present day. The climate was uh, influenced by the psychedelic era, as you want to call it. I think the only difficulty about talking honestly about that period is that now the drug scene is a much heavier thing. And if you're now in any way seen to incite uh, or advocate drug taking, you're now talking about crack, you're now talking about glue sniffing, you're now talking about life-threatening things. So I, I don't actually like doing it because of that. It can easily be misconceived. If you could go back to the period and everyone could understand how the period was and kind of how innocent it was, then it is easier to talk about it. Paul has claimed to the media on three separate occasions that he uh, has given up pot in the aughts and the teens, but I, I think he probably actually has. You know, maybe. <laughs> it's certainly something that has been a part of his life, and he has been beaten down for it and suffered for it. Uh, you know, paid 
paid the price several times. Well, uh, without without Linda, and then you know he tells that story about uh, uh, both when he gave up tobacco and probably marijuana for the first time. You know that Mary had been in an accident or something, and, and he couldn't he couldn't ha- gather enough breath to run down to to pick her up and get her to the hospital. Hmm. And you know, supposedly that was when he made the decision to give give up tobacco. Right. Well, you know, I don't want to really say this person is a, a credible witness necessarily, but um, Paul's second wife uh, said that all he would want to do is lay around and smoke pot. On Egypt Station, he wrote that song. You know, happy with you. You know, right. I used to I used to lay around and get stoned, but I don't do that anymore. But I just find it interesting. And normally, when he's asked about it, it's like, well, we're not in the '60s anymore. The various chemicals are much stronger and much more dangerous. But you know, I don't tell his own kids. I don't tell them. You know, don't do it. I did it, but you got to be careful. Well, he got busted four times, and one cost him. Uh, heavily as far as finances and the band and any number of things. That again is a completely separate story, but it, it does sort of tie into the way one views pot, but uh, the, the Japanese don't kid around. I just say he has a vested interest in downplaying and he's interest in it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. You know, uh, his statement to the media these days is is he'll have an occasional glass of wine after after a show, and that's his uh, drug of choice these days. Yeah, yeah. And whether that's true or not, you know, again, look, he's almost eighty, so <laughs> right. He gets to have his damn glass of wine. <laughs> And whatever, whatever else he can get someone to bring. <laughs> but I can see that he may not need it anymore. Yeah. You know, people give up coffee when they get to a certain yep. age. You know, but so. to, to the point of, to our main point here, uh, yeah, they did drugs, but they spent very little time worried about how they're doing drugs reflected on their image, I think. I think that's that's fair. Absolutely. You know, well, we've got got a story to tell. We're artists. This is, you know, we're doing the same thing that artists have done since the 1500s. And that includes... Yes. That includes, you know, use chemical inducement. I mean, you know, Edgar Allan Poe and, you know, you go back to Shakespeare. I'd be willing to bet if we could actually truly... Uh, find out Shakespeare was uh, was probably high a good uh, percentage of the time. <laughs> you know, for all I know, being drunk back then was the normal state of mind. Well, uh, again, you're living in you're living in the 1600s. Uh, what else is there to do, right? <laughs> right, because you can't go to a Renaissance fair. <laughs> All right. So, uh, any thoughts on uh, this topic uh, before we move on to whatever we're going to do next? Well, you know, I think that there, as you said, their art took them to put their experiences out there, and in that very thing, help change the way modern songwriting has, has gone. And any 
incidents where they made taking drugs look cool is strictly them living their lives. Right. You know, that was, that was right. never really their intent. Well, it's kind of like what John says, you know, that they were in the crow's nest. The, the ship was moving in that direction. They, they were just the first yes. ones to be able to see it and, 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 you know, maybe steer the ship a little bit that way. Great analogy. All right. Very good. So we will be back uh, next week with a new show. See you next week. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beast or Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. My name is Paul McCartney, or, or as I'm now known, that guy from Rock Band. <laughs> I have been asked to present the nomination for the best animated feature film. Stop. I have loved animation since I was a kid, Lady and the Tramp, Yellow Submarine, uh, which is about to resurface, by the way. Um, but animation is not just for children. Uh, it is also for adults who take drugs. <laughs> so let's take a look at the films that were nominated by drug-taking adults. I never wrote any better stuff because I was on acid, though, not on acid. Yeah. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.